The following content is sponsored in partnership with Haymarket Media U.S. It's the PR Week Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Gideon Fiddleside, Editorial Director of Custom at PR Week. Really excited to be with you today for what is going to be a fantastic podcast. We're going to be talking about influencers and influence and how that space is evolving. And I have two incredible leaders joining me today to discuss this. They both come from the sponsor of today's event, Omnicom PR Group, which I will refer to as OPRG going forward. Chris Foster, who is the CEO of OPRG. There's one real challenge that I'm seeing both from communicators and marketers today, and that's in the whole notion of influencers as creators and creatives. And Ephraim Cohen, who's the global lead of influencer and creator strategy at OPRG. You have a new type of influencer, you have all this data and all these rules that make it easier to scale, and you have this fragmentation of trust that causes people to go to 25 different places for 25 different topics with just one. So it's just an incredibly dynamic and powerful time right now. Chris and Ephraim, thank you so much for joining me today. Gideon, thanks for having us. Delighted to be here. Thank you, guys. And actually, um, it's actually the second time in less than a month that I've gotten to spend some time with these two fine gentlemen discussing this topic. We were actually in San Francisco in, I was going to say earlier this month, but it is April, so it was in early March, um, where we had this conversation. We had some terrific leaders from brands who joined us for that conversation, and an article of which, recapping that roundtable, is actually on PRWeek.com right now, and I'll probably reference that a little bit later as well. But so, this is a bit of a continuation of that conversation. Of course, for those of you out there who were not privy to that conversation, some of this stuff might be very new to you, but it's all really, really good. And I think I'm going to start here. And... It sounds like a simple question, but there's a lot of layers to it. The question is, what is an influencer? And obviously, there's the dictionary definition of it, but there's a lot more to it than that. So, if Ryan or Chris, honestly, I could go to either one of you with this. I'll let whoever wants to start, start, and the other one could pick up from there. So, again, gentlemen, what is an influencer? Well, Brian, if you're good, I'll, I'll start here, and then we can uh, we can build off one another here. So, Gideon, once again, thank, thank you again for the opportunity and, and appreciate Pierre Week as a partner. I think the way I think about influencer, and to your point, it's a little different from where we sit than the, the Webster's version. And influence certainly is not new in our industry by any stretch. I think it's evolved. But I look at influencers as four separate you know, sort of categories. One, I think influencers are audiences. Influencers are channels. They're also creatives and creators. And then there's the traditional influence. So, you know, I think when you think about um, working with creatives and you think about influence in a more modern setting, that's the orientation I use. I think we use. We also think about that from the standpoint of also an audience first approach, you know, using audiences to help inform your strategy, which really then puts influencer or the advocate really at the center of whatever campaign or strategy you're trying to aim towards. So, Fry, I'm not sure if you agree, you may disagree, which wouldn't be a Uncommon. Uh, definitely, oh, I definitely agree. I want to. I'm going to focus in on influencer, uh, the person who can also be a channel. Um, so you have the traditional definition, just building off Chris, what you're saying of you know someone who people look to for information to make the decision, make decisions, potentially shift behavior. But in the modern definition, the contemporary definition, it's it's someone where they own their own audience. So when I started, when many of us started in this profession. You had a journalist who is an influencer. You might have a politician, a celebrity, an expert. 
but they worked with the audiences of news and other organizations. Now, you know, thanks to social media, and it started before that, just with the web, first they started their own websites and they started blogs, now on social, they have their own audience. So you have influencers who are the individual working with third-party channels, and then you have influencers with their own audience, and they're essentially like small media companies, some of them not so small anymore. They have an editorial focus. They have an audience interested in that editorial focus and looking to make decisions based on that. What's really become powerful in the last couple of years, uh, and I should say that influence and influencers have always been at the core of our profession. And we need to remember that as we see every marketing and communications discipline jump in with their influencer and creator marketing strategies. Influencers and creators, we didn't call them that before, they've always been core to what we do is in public relations. What's really happened in the last couple of years is the ability to scale that strategy. Regulations made it safer. Uh, data made it easier to find them. And then, as Chris was saying, the audience-first data that we really specialize in at OPRG made it easier to more accurately pinpoint which influencer and which audience is, is really right with a, with a really high level of accuracy for the brand. So that's particularly powerful. Um, but there's one trend underlying all this that I think is really important because, all right, all these people are online, but why isn't it like 20, 30 years ago where people would go to a couple of primary news sources and that was their paper of record, so to speak, or their source of record and move on? We talk a lot about the fragmentation of media and, and as a result of fragmentation of influence, it's really a fragmentation of trust. So just to drill down what I was saying a little more, while we spend a lot of time focusing on influence and influencers, being in the public relations business, we spend a very sizable chunk of time on news and information-oriented, news-oriented influence and influencers. And what you really see is not only has this field grown, I mean, people go to YouTubers and treat them as journalists. People go to Instagrammers, not the journalists on Instagram, but people self-proclaimed experts and treat them as news sources. And that's the result of fragmentation of trust, not decline, but fragmentation where audiences are choosing who they want to trust for one topic and going to that source versus the more traditional 20, 30 years ago of having a couple primary sources and that was it. So you have the new type of influencer, you have all this data and all these rules that make it easier to scale, and then you have this fragmentation of trust that causes people to go to 25 different places for 25 different topics versus just one. So it's, an, it's just an incredibly dynamic and powerful time right now. Just one build on that before you jump in, Gideon. It's, it's interesting you say that, Fryman, and I agree with you. There, there's one real challenge that I'm seeing both from communicators and marketers today, and that's in the whole notion of influencers as creators and creatives, right? So many of our influencers say, as we're driving towards relevance and relatability, um, are actually content creators. So gone are the days when, you know, an advocate or an influencer would sort of wait for content from a brand or marketers and then and, and sort of put that information out into the, out into the ether. They're actually creating content, in some cases creating content together with brands, creating content together with audiences. So there's a co-creation of, yeah. of content and a co-creation of creative that I think is making influencer and advocacy very relevant today and incredibly powerful today, but also changing a dynamic between communicators, marketers, and influencers, I think is quite exciting. Uh, and one of the reasons why I think, to Ephraim's point, it's so dynamic, it feels so new, and it feels so powerful today, because that whole notion of co-creating content 
is so real, so in real time and across so many channels that are relevant for the audiences. So quite exciting uh, and very, very dynamic. I love the way you put that. You know, they used to wait for us for content, but I love the way you put it, Chris. It's, uh, <laughs> they're going to be producing it, and they're open to collaborating right. with us and the brands, but they're not going to wait anymore. You know, what's really interesting about this also, and I've had conversations with other people about this, is this very much enters into also the media relations aspect of what communicators do, because influencers now are absolutely part of the media in ways that I don't think anyone really considered them even 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago. This is an incredible evolution of that. So that's why this is such an important conversation to have. And I really appreciate your insights on that. When we move on to the next topic, though, this is also something that was a very interesting conversation when we met, when we met um, last month, and I'm sure it'll be picked up right now. Some very, very interesting perspectives were shared that could help communicators think differently about paid partnerships with influencers. And clearly, when you think about paid, some might start saying, hmm, what about authenticity? You can't pay and still be authentic. And that's not necessarily the case. And I think we're going to get into that a little bit too. So paid partnerships when it comes to influencers, would love for you guys to expand on that a little bit here. Ephraim, maybe you'll start on this one? Sure. So yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the rules you follow, there's a lot of what's old is new again. So you know, in other words, the fundamentals don't change. Um, an early version of influencers were spokespeople. You go out and hire spokespeople for a brand, a product launch, a tour, what have you. Authenticity was always important. It's become increasingly so because uh, influencers will and creators will on their own dig out the truth if it's not there. But you always want to find a, a spokesperson who authentically represented the message the brand you're looking for, even more so today. So when you do it right, when you use data to figure out who's the right person, ideally the audience already sees them in that authentic manner it's going to be very well received. The fact that it's paid, and we always look at this, we test it time and time again, be transparent, disclose, and people don't care if it's right. The only reason paid is really a problem is when either the, the content is just not good or you don't disclose. You know, either one of those is like, oh, well, I'm not interested, or you tried to trick me. But really, as long as it's, if it's right, if it's quality content and it's authentic, it's true to its form, it's it's going to be well received. You know, the popular example I tend to throw out is uh, uh, Jay Leno and Harley Davidson. He has a following. People know, you know, he loves motorbikes, he loves collecting cars. Like, he's already known for this. So if a Harley Davidson decides to go out and say, you know, we want to partner with Jay on a big basis, I don't think the audience would blink an eye. That's the type of thing we do all the time. Um, what's really important these days and going back, and this is why you'll hear from, I think, Chris and myself, uh, Chris, if I can <laughs> Say this by you as well. Like we'll, we'll always talk about audience-first data, as will many others at OPRG, is because that lets us look at not authenticity based on what's being reported in news, but authenticity based on what are people's actually actual interests. So, are they following someone? Yes, but does that person's interests align with theirs? You know, when you just look at social data, you may be misled just because they're following something doesn't mean they believe in it or want to believe it or interested. They may be following for entertainment purposes, for competitive purposes. Who knows? But with audience data, you can more accurately pinpoint who the people that are interested in following. They already see that authenticity. And if we pay them, that's going to be seen as a natural extension. As long as we work them to be work with the influencers to continue to be true to who they are, what their interests are, and what their message is. Excellent. You know, interestingly, um, you know, Fram, you mentioned Jay Leno, Harley Davidson. I think it, it, I, I picked up the question a little differently, you know, getting I, I think I look at it like, so for example, you know, I don't think the question is, should I pay an influence or not? I think if you identify the right product advocate 
And if we lean into, as Ephraim mentioned, relevance, credibility, relatability, then the question is, you know, let, let's put paid muscle behind the amplification. Let's find the right advocate and then put paid behind amplifying that, whether it's in you know, multiple channels or with additional co- content creation, just to widen that sphere of influence, you know, with that advocate partner. And I think that to me feels, uh, feels authentic. Uh, and it can link back to back to business and measurable results for our, for for whatever brand or product is trying to be amplified. But one comment I think is is relevant that Afri mentioned is the authenticity of an influencer, whether it's a, a a macro influencer, a micro or a nano, is absolutely essential. And the good news today for practitioners is we have data. It's the convergence of data and analytics to help us drive towards more precision. Uh, for a relevant um, influencer who who resonates with specific audiences, when we really lean into that, we can be a lot more precise in finding the right advocate uh, for a brand uh, or campaign, which I think is very exciting. What also is very exciting to me, and I'm sure to everyone out there also, is what you're talking about, the precision that you can bring to the decisions that you make in this arena with the use of data. Um, again, so much of PR for the longest time, not just influence, but any, any a lot of areas of PR, a lot of it was gut feel. Um, it's not the case anymore. There is a place for that, by the way. I'm not saying there isn't. <laughs> but you have so much data that's at, your, that's at your disposal. You can make some really, really great decisions about the influences you work with and so many other things that communicators are on. So again, very, very exciting. And again, one of the reasons I enjoy this conversation so much as I did the one that we had last month is so much new was brought to the table in terms of thinking about this. And that's obviously, those are the best conversations to have. To wit. Hey, Gideon. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Here. I know you're not going to be surprised. Uh, that I'm in a, You know, I love data. And I think one of the things I would just encourage listeners to do is think about how we use data. Oftentimes, we use data to answer questions. And I think I've said this repeatedly for years, but it's, I think it bears repeating. Uh, data is not always used to, to answer questions. It should be used sometimes to help us figure out which questions we should be asking. Mm. So when you think about a brand, an audience, uh, a campaign, let the data help, which is why audience first works. Let the data help inform the strategy. Right, through, ask, through asking questions and letting the data figure out what questions we should be asking. That leads us to the precision uh, around some of the campaigns. So I, you just opened the door for that kid. I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. No, no, no. You know what, Chris? Sometimes I forget where you, know, where you came from in your, earlier in your career <laughs> and how, how, how steeped you were in data. Clearly, you are still now. But yeah, I, 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 sometimes I forget about that. Maybe I should have used data before I asked some of these questions, but that's another conversation. Uh, but anyway... Listen, every conversation like this that you have, you know, you want to talk, you want to talk about measurement. And I know we've mentioned it a little bit before, but you know what? Communicators out there are always thinking about, okay, how do I measure the impact of what I'm doing in a manner that the C-suite's going to care about? So again, I'll bring that question to this particular conversation. What is the most effective way for communicators to measure the impact of influencer partnerships in a manner that will resonate with the C-suite. And I know both of you have interesting answers to this one. And Chris, I guess I'll just kind of flip-flop here if we start. So Chris, I guess I'll start with you on this one. Okay. Happy to. Look, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of measurement. I think it's important for our industry um, and, our, and our client partners. But I think measuring you know, the impact of the campaign must link back to some business metrics, sales, market share, lead gen. That needs to be our focus. And I, I believe, truthfully, moving away from volume metrics uh, like impressions, we need to li- link towards business outcomes. One of the things, and, and this has been historically uh, a challenge for our industry, 
uh, one of the things we did um, at, at Omnicom is create uh, Omni Earned ID, which is a proprietary patent pending platform that links earned media and content to business results, such as sales and brand reputation. And I think that you know, using using that framework, we're able to be um, you know very surgical in in setting up a campaign as to what business results you want to drive towards, and then not just waiting until the end of a campaign, right? Because we're able to with data science and analytics evaluate and learn and test throughout the course of an influencer campaign. So we're learning with every interaction, every exchange, every like, every click, um, every 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 engagement, and that allows us to then you know tweak and adjust and learn in real time, uh, and then link back to a business result. So I'm sure Ephraim's going to build on that, given how close he is uh, to OEID. But I just think that's a it's a critical um, you know aspect of today's influence, today's measurement that we should not be we should not shy away from because we can as practitioners link much closer to sales um, and market share than we've ever been able to do before given the new data environment and our sophistication and maturity as an industry with interacting with data and using data science and analytics uh, to help support the practice of communications. So, yeah, I want to build on that by talking about, I'm going to, you know, Chris, you were bringing it back, you know, you don't just wait till the end to measure, you do it during the campaign. And, um, you know, as you know, we, we actually really try and pull that back all the way to the planning stage. So when you start using this data at the planning stage, um, it allows you to not just get a better, more precise understanding of the audience and how you'll react, but start predicting what that business outcome might be based on the campaign. Um, I actually look to uh, political and public affairs campaigns, which I've been doing this for a long time. They've been using audience data to say, if we message something a certain way and then deliver it a certain way, it will result in this action voting more likely to vote for a politician or support a policy or what have you. Um, you see the same thing on the advertising side. We're using the same data. This audience data is what our advertising you know, brethren use to figure out how to spend hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. If we, we they're, they're understanding the audience at a deep level, they're then creating and testing things with that audience at the planning stage so that they're starting to predict when we get to the end of the campaign, what kind of business results will we see? Are people more likely to purchase something? Are they more likely to invest in something? Uh, did they purchase something? Did they move the needle in a certain way that we predicted? And the more you go through these cycles, the more accurate you become. And I think, you know, the, what OEID is really important, where it's a real game changer, not just for OPRG, but it should be a lesson for the industry is the reason we haven't really been able to do this until now is most of our planning and measurement, most of the data used by planning and measurement outside of specialty teams, by, by your kind of standard communications team, is data you get from news media and social media, which is not does not give you a deep understanding of the audience itself. When you start with understanding the audience itself, then you can more precisely figure out what will the audience do based on the campaign's actions. But when you start with the social news media data, and not the audience, you, can, you might be able to predict what kind of headlines you'll see and what kind of social content you'll see, but you can't carry it all the way out to the business, to the audience behavior and the business outcome related to that audience behavior. That's really fascinating. And actually, I do want to ask you guys a question, though, because a lot of times C-suites need to, they need proof. They need proof that something worked or is going to work before they sign off on it. And it's part of what you're talking about, if I'm understanding you correctly, is 
you know what, in some ways, this is in some ways you you can tell the C-suite, hey, with this data, we're going to be able to predict what's going to happen with a lot of accuracy. But that still takes a little bit of faith on the C-suite's part to believe that. Does that ever pose a problem for you guys in terms of getting the C-suite buy-in? Like, because basically, you're, in some ways, if I'm not misunderstanding you, and if I am, please tell me, it's, you know what, let's do, you know, we have this data that we can use and we can tell you what we think is going to happen based on it. But a lot of times the CC wants to see something happen before they'll sign off on it. You understand what I'm saying? No, no, I, def- I definitely understand that, Efron, but it's almost like, let's, you know, I want to feel how far, how fast the car dies without driving it, right? So you have to, we have to, we have to launch a campaign or do something in order to, to, to drive towards some business results and metrics. Mm-hmm. What, what I will tell you that happens when we come up against that, I'll just give you one example, I know Fry may have another, is oftentimes we'll just take an existing campaign that a, that a client partner has, has engaged in and we'll sort of run them through our audience first, OEID um, you know, analysis and show them what we could have or would have done with that campaign. Uh, and that typically um, you know, answers the question of, what the, of the art of the possible uh, and just shows a very different way of thinking about measuring the impact of the content uh, moving forward. So I'm seeing less and less, in particular in the area of influencer, that we're being you know, challenged on metrics and results before we begin. And there's a lot of focus on our approach, why it's different, how we do things differently, what's, how are we leaning into or using data science and analytics uh, for influencer campaigns, and what metrics or business results do we think we can drive towards? Uh, and a conversation around that typically gets us, um, you know, over a hurdle and, and, and on to work. Excellent. I think, uh, you know, one thing about how you talk in the C-suite is they know the world is not perfect. There are always various unknown variables that can impact for any business decision. Um, when you're making an investment, and whether it's an investment in a factory or investment in a PR campaign, you're trying to figure out how do you, how do you uh, decrease the risk and maximize the reward. And you're constantly going through that cycle. And you're learning from what we're doing from, from each cycle on, all right, what do we learn from it? How do we decrease it? How do we decrease the risk and, in, and increase the return on the investment? And Chris, what you were just saying is a good example of what we're doing is going in and saying, look, when you, here's what you did last time. And that was a good campaign and you got a good return. But by using this audience-driven, this OEID-based approach, we're now able to show you how to use this approach. You could have gotten more accurate on the influencer and more accurately predicted the outcome. And the more you use this approach, the more you get those learnings and you increase uh, lowering the risk and increasing the return. And that's a lot of the business mentality is, yes, they want to see the actions, but they're also, you know, when you're in the C-suite, they're trying to figure out where to put their money. They only have so many dollars to allocate. So the more you can strike that, the more you can go in and show that example that Chris was talking to, the more they, they look at it and go, okay, so maybe this is a better place to invest more because I can see how you're better predicting a positive outcome with decreased risk. How do we get on that cycle and continue doing that? And that's one of the, I think it's a mix of having the data, but it's also just thinking that way when you're walking into that C-suite. So you're you're talking on the same mental plane system. No, uh, honestly, both of you, thank you so much for that because I know that's something that communicators are always thinking about and I appreciate that guidance. That was terrific. I'm going to close up with this one. This should be a fun. This should be fun. This all was fun. But what I really wanted to close this with was I would love for each of you guys to give me one example of a brand that comes to mind if I were to ask you to name one that really seems to have their act together in terms of strong influencer partnerships. 
it could be a client of yours or it doesn't have to be a client of yours. But I'd love to get one example from each of you. So, um, Ephraim, I think the ping pong serving is on your side now. So I'll let you start. Happy to allow it over first. So um, uh, they are a client. We work them in various areas. So I'm not going to talk about any one specific area, but uh, Samsung for a long time, I mean, from the early days of, of blogger networks to modern social influencers, uh, really does uh, some, some very sophisticated forward-looking work with, with us as well as others um, in the influencer space. I actually think one of the best examples um, was the Note 7 rebuild. I mean, that was a major brand rebuild after, you know, arguably the biggest product crisis in history. Um, and they, they handled it so well in so many ways, but one of the things they did was really optimize that mix of earned and paid influencer partnerships. And we're very focused on creating authentic partnerships in both ways in order to show people what they were doing uh, with the uh, Note brand uh, to rebuild it and make sure future products uh, had the best possible engineering, didn't have any issues, and ones that people were really going to look forward to. Uh, the brand was rebuilt, and the, the product launch that came after that rebuild was, frankly, a phenomenal success. And at the center of it was working with all the right mix of influencers. Excellent. And Chris? Look, I think I think I agree with you, Efrain, uh, that Samsung was great. I think the industries that, for me, feel like they're leaning in quite well, healthcare always sort of stands out to me as an industry that really leans into advocates and influence as well. I just love how healthcare organizations lean into professionals uh, in a much more authentic and genuine way as they have in the past, um, you know, as, as influencer, influencer advocacy for, for campaigns. So I'm struck by the work that we're seeing now, which I really appreciate in healthcare, obviously also beauty, fashion, travel, uh, lean in a bit more. Uh, but I'd say, um, you know, taking an industry approach, uh, Gideon, uh, very, very struck and impressed by what's happening in the healthcare space. I very much appreciate that. And uh, dare I say, after this conversation, I think both of you have proved to be quite influential yourselves. You certainly influenced me, and I appreciate that. This is always a fascinating conversation. I always really, really enjoy the opportunities I get to speak to. I'm going to say, brilliant minds like Chris and Ephraim, they really are very, very smart. And uh, they're doing some wonderful things with PRG, especially on the influencer front, and um, some really, really exciting things. And I obviously want to thank OPRG for their sponsorship of this podcast and their support of PR Week in general. Of course, I want to thank Ephraim and Chris for taking the time from their very busy schedules to join us today for this podcast. I also, of course, want to thank all of you out there for tuning in. Hope you got as much out of this as you were uh, expecting, if not more. On behalf of PR Week, this is Gideon Fiddlesai, Editorial Director of Custom. I'm wishing you all a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you.